All right. So um, to review a bit, we talked last time about the terrible days. The Yamim Noraim is what they're called in Hebrew. And we discussed how in Joel chapter 2, verse 1, it mentions Rosh Hashanah, the last trump. And then in verse 11 of Joel 2, it mentions the terrible day of the Lord, which is a reference to the, the terrible days, the Yamim Noraim. And then in Joel 2.15, it mentions a fast, and it mentions a trump again. And that's a reference to the great trump, or Yom Kippur. And so in Joel chapter 2, you see those three festival times laid out in order. First, you have... The last trump, that's the Feast of Trumpets. Then you have the terrible days, or the days of awe, as they're also called. And then lastly, you have the great trump, which is the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. And it gets confusing sometimes because they have so many names for the same festivals. But uh, we're going to talk today about Yom Kippur, the great trump, the Day of Atonement. And the passage for that in Scripture is Leviticus 16. So I'm going to turn there and read what it says about the Day of Atonement. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'll read one particular portion that has to do with the sacrifices. Let's see. We actually looked at this passage a few weeks back when we were talking about the veils in the tabernacle. Because of the very beginning of Luke, or not Luke, sorry, the very beginning of Leviticus 16, it mentions that whenever the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would bring with him a cloud of incense, and that would put a barrier between him and God over the mercy seat. So even though God appeared in a cloud already over the mercy seat, there was that additional cloud of incense that would shield the high priest from the presence of God so he didn't die. <clears throat> but he would go in there first, and he would bring a bullock, which is a young bull. And that would be for himself and for his house. So that would be for all the priests. And that's mentioned in verse 6. And I, I read something today that was really interesting, that according to Jewish tradition, and again, it's tradition, we don't know how reliable it is, but according to this tradition, whenever Aaron made this bull, this young bull, the calf, the golden calf, and the people bowed down and worshipped it. According to the tradition, Satan entered it and made it to move. Oh. And it says that the devil inside the calf danced and jumped in the middle of the camp, which is really weird. Right. But again, we talked about this too, not too long ago, how no doubt that's what was happening whenever they cast down their serpents in Egypt, those Egyptian sorcerers, demons, and dwelt them. And then in Revelation, it talks about the image of the beast, and it's animated, and it moves, and it, you know, it talks. And so, maybe that actually happened. Right. But according to the tradition, the reason that Aaron and his descendants were to bring in a young calf or a young bull, it was to be a reminder that God had atoned for their sin, for his sin in particular, for making the golden calf. So why does he bring in a bull instead of a lamb here? 
According to the Jewish tradition, the reason that he brought in a bull is because it was to be a reminder perpetually of how they sinned in worshiping the golden calf. And so that's interesting. We don't know that there's a connection there necessarily, but it makes sense, sort of. Uh, None of it is unbiblical, so we just kind of have to wait and see. We'll find out one day. But there was another sacrifice that was also brought into the Holy of Holies, and that was the blood of a goat. So starting in verse 7, it says, Aaron shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a burnt offering. But the goat on which... The lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. Now, what gets really confusing here is the word for scapegoat. Now, it can literally be translated scapegoat or goat that is to make its escape into the wilderness. But it can also be translated as a proper name. And the word in Hebrew is azazel. Azazel is a really interesting character because in Jewish tradition, Azazel is a demon. Right. And before the flood, Azazel was one of the 70 watchers that came down on Mount Hermon, mingled with the daughters of men. The offspring were giants. And Azazel taught mankind war, taught them how to make weapons so they could be violent towards each other. And so... There were lots of things apparently those fallen angels taught, but Azazel is really set aside as being one of the worst. So if you read in First Enoch, he is set aside as the worst of all the watchers that deceived and led astray mankind. He represented the worst kinds of evil. So it is possible here, and this is the debate again, it's possible that when it says one of these goats shall be for Azazel, that it's referring to the fact that Azazel was buried, according to the book of Enoch, in the wilderness. Was put in a ravine under the earth, a cave, different ways of looking at it. But basically, uh, in the wilderness, there was a prison for Azazel. He was trapped there. He'd be trapped there until the end of time. And so whenever they sent the scapegoat out into the wilderness, that is symbolically sending the scapegoat out to where Azazel is. Now, why would they send a goat out to a fallen angel? Okay, what's the purpose in all of that? I think that's the weakness of the interpretation that says that Azazel is a proper name, that it's a person. But it could be that when it says this scapegoat shall be for Azazel, it means that this scapegoat is embodying all that Azazel is. Azazel is a sinner. Azazel is a wicked rebel against God. And so the worst kinds of sins are placed on the scapegoat. And so when the scapegoat is released into the wilderness, it's identifying the scapegoat with all that Azazel is. So it would be sort of like thinking of Satan as the author of sin, right? I mean, we, we sin too. So, you know, Satan is a make us sin, but he is seen as the originator. He's the instigator. And so in a similar sense, the scapegoat could be identified with Azazel because the scapegoat is representing sin. And another thing about this ritual, it's not mentioned in Leviticus, but according to later tradition and Christians mentioned this too, in early church writing, 
that this goat that was dedicated to Azazel had a scarlet cord tied around its neck. Yeah. Or, or around its horns, actually. And it was tied to a rock, the other end was, and they pushed this goat off a cliff. Yeah. And so it was a scarlet cord, a red cord, and whenever the goat reached the bottom, I mean, it's dead. It's in pieces, you know, and scattered across the ravine. And whenever that was done, whenever the goat died, the scarlet cord would turn white. And it was a miracle. And what's interesting is Jewish tradition says that this particular miracle that happened on the Day of Atonement stopped conspicuously 40 years before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. And 40 years before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. was when Christ came. And so they note that non-Christian Jews note that this miracle and others, but that's one particular miracle that took place and it stopped that year. So that makes me wonder if there's some legitimacy to it. Not necessarily that God commanded it back in Leviticus. We don't see that. So I doubt that he gave that command back then, but apparently this is something that was added later on and it was important to the Jewish people and they thought that this was something that honored God. So when they practiced this feast, after having rejected Christ, it was a, supposed to be an indication to them something's wrong. And the reason something's wrong is because they rejected the Messiah. So I do think that this tradition is something they certainly did. And I think that it was miraculous. But I don't necessarily think that it was originally given to Moses. But... Um, I think it's safest because there's not a lot of evidence for Azazel early on. I mean, the traditions about him are very late. Like even First Enoch, though First Enoch was written before Christ, it's not near as ancient as the Bible. And we don't find any references to him that are old enough for me to think maybe this is a biblical, a biblical tradition. I think it's more likely that Azazel is translated rightly as scapegoat. So the word literally means scapegoat. And later on, because the Jews associated demons with the wilderness, perhaps over time that compounded into this idea that there's this demon of the wilderness that they represented as a goat. He had goat-like features and they gave him the name Azazel. So the question is what came first? You know, it, you know, is Azazel a person in Leviticus 16 and this tradition about him is based on that? Or is it over time they added to the biblical account and they embellished it to where you have this full-fledged tradition about this demon, whereas the Bible doesn't mention him at all? So I think it's most likely that scapegoat is referring to just this goat that was moved out into the wilderness and represented the carrying away of the people's sin. So you don't think it has anything to do with it? I don't think I, I it's possible. So I think that even if it did happen that way and this goat somehow represents Azazel, yeah. it wouldn't be a shock to me, right? I mean, because again, Azazel in that case would be a demon and represent all things sinful. Right. And God is removing sinful things from the camp, right? He's removing sin from the nation of Israel. Just like one day he's going to take all sin, including the chief of sinners, the devil, and remove him. 
into the lake of fire. So again, the imagery would still stick for me. It, it would yeah. be biblical, I suppose, but I just don't think there's enough evidence to link the scapegoat to this fallen yeah. angel called Azazel because yeah. the tradition is just too late for me. So anyways, it could be, who knows, but since the word itself can be explained by a literal translation, scapegoat, we should probably just stick with that, I think. Sure. Uh, but anyways, uh, Talking about this a little bit more, um, there's two aspects to atonement. So the first aspect is sin is being taken into, um, I'm sorry, sin is being atoned for by blood sacrifice and the blood is being accepted by the Lord and the Holy of Holies. And then sin is being removed from the camp. So sin is being paid for and sin is being removed. And early Christians, they... They actually believed the two goats represented the two comings of Christ. They thought the first coming, I suppose, would represent Jesus paying for our sin, but sin is still in the world. So even though he paid for our sin 2,000 years ago, sin has not been removed yet. But sin will be removed when he comes back. And so that would be represented by that second goat that is removed into the wilderness. And that's plausible. Again, I don't know if the two comings of Christ are embedded in that. The one thing we can say for sure, if we're not going beyond the text, is that the first goat represents propitiation. So this substitutionary animal sacrifice is bearing the wrath of God in our place and is accepted by God on the mercy seat. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. And he went into heaven to the Holy of Holies. And this second goat represents sin being removed from us. So because sin has been paid for, sin can be removed. God can't remove our sins without sin being paid for. That's why there's there's a need for two goats. Because it's two sides of the same coin, right? God can forgive us because of Christ. But the reason that forgiveness is possible at all is because Christ bore our sins. So they go together but they're distinct ideas. It's like uh, being born again. We've talked about this, how it's different than being justified. You are born again because you're justified. Justified means you're cleared of your guilt. Born again means you're brought into the family of God. You're brought into the family of God on the basis of your justification. And so the removal of sin from the camp of Israel is based on the fact that God has just accepted this sacrifice that was brought into the most holy place. So ultimately, it's just talking about the same thing. Sin is being paid for, sin is being removed. But that's the ritual of the two goats. Now, there were a couple other miracles that I was going to mention that took place. One of them also happened on the Day of Atonement, and that was the gates of the temple would close by themselves. And so the last trump, we talked about how that's the Feast of Trumpets, the gates were opened, and that represented heavens opened, the rapture happens, the church goes to be with the Lord, sheltered in the bridal chamber. But at the end of this period of judgment, at the end of the terrible days, the gates close. So during the terrible days, if someone was to repent and place their faith in Christ, they would be saved. And when he came back, they would be permitted into his kingdom. 
But if during that time period you don't repent, once he comes back, the gates are shut. And at that point, there would be, again, the removal of sin from the camp. I think the removal of sin from the camp does have to do, again, with that goat that's sent into the wilderness. I think that when the Day of Atonement takes place, there are going to be two groups of people. There are going to be those people who have identified with Christ because they placed their faith in him. And so they have atonement. And then there's going to be the other group of people who they have not identified with Christ. And so they are removed from the camp. And obviously, like that tradition showed later on, the goat being cast into the ravine. Right. That sort of judgment was a very strong warning. Like that's going to happen to those who don't believe in Jesus. You know, death will surely happen eternally for those who don't identify with Christ. And those gates will be closed and that opportunity is lost. So the closing of the gates by themselves without any help from a man was another miracle. And there's one last miracle, and this one doesn't have to do with the Day of Atonement, but the angel that troubled the water. Okay. Um, we talked about that whenever we were watching The Chosen, and they tried yeah. to explain that away, right? That yeah, yeah, yeah. the troubling of the water was a later addition or yeah. it was a, a pagan superstition. Well, according to the Jews, it was a real thing that happened. And also, it stopped 40 years before the destruction of the temple. So these three miracles that were happening every single year around the same time. And the troubling of the water, it mentions that it went along with, um, let's see, what's this? What's this festival? The Great Salvation. Yeah. Yeah, the Great Salvation took place. The month of Tishri, uh, day 21 of the month of Tishri. And so this this was when the water would be troubled. Yeah. And this was a miracle that would happen, I suppose, every time during that festival every year. So how often did it happen? That's what I'm trying to... Like, did it... it Let me say, see if he says. Let me see. Yeah. Um, because that, that interests me because that's one of the things that actually turned me off of The Chosen was, I think it was probably one of the first things it was like oh he didn't just say that to me <laughs> okay you know what I mean? so he says uh, Yoma 40a from the Mishnah actually states that these three miracles stopped happening about 40 years before the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD. This would have been during the Messiah's ministry. I personally believe that the last time the angel troubled the water was the year before Jesus healed the sick man. The angel pointed to Christ. Okay. That's what he says about that. But, um, the pools of Bethsaida and Siloam were mikvahs or baptismals for the ancient Jews and used heavily by pilgrims during the festivals of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. God would send an angel to one or both of these pools and trouble the water. At that time, the first person to go into the water was healed. When this healing miracle occurred, it showed that God had created living water for the healing of the nations. He still doesn't really mention exactly when. Um, what, what page are you on? This is page 119. Let's see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if he, he he includes it in this chapter. 
on the great salvation, the the great day is what it's called. Yeah. But he doesn't mention if it happened any other time. Um, he thinks that it happened on this day because the great salvation is associated with the living water. And so he thinks that's probably when it happened, but I don't know what the Mishnah says. So he doesn't give a quote exactly about that. But uh, that was one of those miracles that happened regularly, even if it was once a year. It still happened on a regular basis until Christ came and then it stopped. And they mentioned that it stopped, which would be a really good thing to point out to a Jew who has a lot of respect for their, their Mishnah, their Talmud, all those traditions. Be like, huh. These miracles stopped exactly when Jesus was crucified. Hmm. You know, yeah. maybe there's something to that. And that, that could be good apologetic material right there. Absolutely. But um, anyways, those were the three miracles that he mentions here that are mentioned in the Talmud um, that stopped. Let's see. He also mentions that this ritual about the two goats, he thinks that the two goats represent the two messiahs, one the true messiah and one the false messiah. So he thinks that since the Day of Atonement is connected to Christ coming back and judging the Antichrist, that there is the one goat which represents Christ who he is paying for sin. His blood is accepted by God. And then there's the other goat that's removed into the wilderness and suffers a horrible fate. And so he thinks, yes, yeah, so he thinks, right. he thinks, and what's interesting about that, and this, some people point out this connection, they think that Apollyon yeah. and the Antichrist are the same person. I don't think so. Mm. I, I know some people will point to a couple of verses, but it doesn't make a clear cut connection. But they think that Apollyon and Azazel may be the same person. Mm. And Azazel, they think, could be the Antichrist. And, and right. in that case, um, that would support what he's saying here, that you have one goat representing the Lord who's paying for our sins, and then the other goat represents the Antichrist who's removed from the camp and who is judged by God at the return of Christ. Right. Uh, again, as far as the Azazel thing goes, we don't know. Right. Uh, I do think, though, that it's intriguing to consider the two goats as representing the two messiahs. One who's paying for our sins and the other who's removed from the camp and suffers judgment. But then again, Christ was removed from the camp. I mean, it says in Hebrews that he went outside the gate. Right. He went outside the camp because that's where Golgotha was. Right. And there he suffered that reproach and he died for us. So uh, again, it could just be the reason you have two goats is because there's rich imagery that the Lord is wanting to bring across to us. And that rich imagery includes atonement, propitiation, and then expiation. Expiation is the removal of sin. Propitiation is the payment for sin. And so in that case, you wouldn't have two persons being depicted. It's just one person, Christ, and his different ministries, what he accomplishes for us. So, you know, sometimes I think when I'm reading this book, he's got some good ideas. But in other places, it's like, yeah. That's interesting. That's possible. Yeah. But maybe you're thinking a little bit too hard about it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's what I that's what I think every now and then. So yeah. you just got to be careful about it. Uh, but he does point out some good stuff here about how they performed that goat ritual. It also mentions in this book 
that in Deuteronomy 15, every seven years on the Day of Atonement, all debts were forgiven for Israelites, but not for unbelievers or foreigners. And so he thinks that's a picture of at the end of the tribulation, at the end of the seven years, on the Day of Atonement, Christ is going to come back and forgive all the sins of the people who didn't go in the rapture and believed afterwards. So they missed out on the rapture. They messed up big time, but they repented. And so if they survive to the end, when Christ comes back, he is going to bring them into the kingdom alive. There won't be any resurrection in their case because they right. survived. But he brings them into the kingdom and he forgives them of all their debts. And so even though they were forgiven already, this is sort of like the story in my mind of Abraham and Isaac. So Abraham was saved long before he offers up Isaac. But when he offers up Isaac, God says something to him that he hasn't said before. Like, now I know that you honor me and you fear me and, you know, I can see your faith, right? It's a very special commendation. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine throughout those seven years, those people are going to be kicking themselves like, man, I missed it. I missed the rapture. I missed out on that because I was stubborn and I rejected the Lord. And, but I believe now, but I can imagine that be something that would bother them. It's like Paul. I mean, Paul did sort of the same thing, didn't he? I mean, mm. there's all this preaching. There are apostles performing miracles and here he is killing Christians. And all throughout his letters, you see, he's still like, I, I accept that I've been forgiven, but it's still something that bothers me. Like he's bothered by the fact that he had rejected the Lord. And I think that, those people in the tribulation might have a similar existential crisis, perhaps. And at the end, when the Lord comes back, he forgives them. He's like, I'm just telling you, you already should know this. And you already know deep down that I've forgiven you. But I'm telling you right now, I forgive you. You're, you're in the kingdom now. Okay. They're going to hear it. And yeah. I think that's going to be very therapeutic <laughs> for yeah. those people. Like uh, you are forgiven, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's interesting that every seven years on the day of atonement, is when that forgiveness happened. There's also the Jub year of Jubilees too. And I, I don't know if there's uh, a connection between that. That was something different. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, every seven years on the Day of Atonement, that is interesting. Uh, they also called the Day of Atonement the Day of Redemption. And Paul talks about the Day of Redemption um, in Romans 8, I believe. And he talks about the Day of Redemption encompassing the resurrection of the church, which obviously that would push it back before the tribulation, but the day of redemption is not limited to the rapture because it says that the creature longs for a deliverance too. Right. So the earth is in bondage. And so the beginning of that redemption for all of nature and not just for the church is going to be the millennium because there's going to be the removal of the curse. So there will still be death for rebellious people during the millennium, but animals aren't going to be eating each other anymore. So you're going to see this, this process, I suppose, that begins with the rapture and it doesn't culminate until after the millennium. So like when God creates a new heaven, the new earth, obviously it's not going to be finished until get to the end of revelation after the millennium. And he creates a new heaven, the new earth, but it's like God doesn't always do things in, you know, one event, one sweeping event. He didn't do that with salvation. You know, he came the first time 
He paid for our sins. He sent the Holy Spirit so we could be spiritually redeemed. But he's still going to come and fix us bodily, right? He hasn't done that yet. So there's a two-part. And so it's like the beginning of the millennium, he starts to do things, okay? That's why in Isaiah, he actually talks about the new heaven, the new earth, when referring to the millennium. So to me, there are going to be some noticeable changes. There may be the restoration of a vapor canopy, the pre-flood conditions that involve right. longer lifespans, that's going to happen. But even the pre-flood world, as great as it was in that people live longer, there was still death, you know? Absolutely. So there's going to be death in the millennium, but it's going to be better. And so it's like God's bringing us closer, if that makes any sense. The rapture, the rap, yeah, the, the rapture involves us receiving our incorruptible bodies. The millennium involves God removing the curse. And then at the end of the millennium, he fixes it all completely. It's all done. Like it reaches the final culmination, you know? And so there's that step-by-step process. Um, they also, uh, the Jews knew as we know that the high priest would go face to face into the Holy of Holies, but the high priest wasn't able to see God even though he was in the Holy of Holies, there was still that veil of incense that would block him from looking directly upon the Lord. And that's because of his sin. But in the case of us during the millennium, we're going to be able to see the Lord face to face. We're going to be in the metaphorical Holy of Holies in the presence of the Lord because our sin has been completely removed. Obviously, I believe that if we die before the rapture happens, we still enter into the Holy of Holies of heaven. We enter into God's presence and we can see him. But God is going to give us open access to him. But there's going to be something weird that happens. During the Day of Atonement, or during the millennium in general, I should say, you're going to have people who don't have that access to Jesus. So you have a temple. And the Lord's in the temple. And when you read in Ezekiel, not everybody's allowed to go into that Holy of Holies. Right. And not everybody's allowed to go in and see the Lord who's sitting on the throne. And so this is something that I've been thinking about. I don't know if anybody else has thought this way. So I'm always careful. You know, if no one else has thought it, maybe it's for a good reason. But I've wondered, okay, if we lived in the Old Testament... The Lord's in the temple. We know he's in the temple, right? Yeah. Because God came down in fire when Solomon dedicated it. But generally, did the people see the Lord in the Holy of Holies? No, they didn't. I mean, they didn't, right? I mean, no. they had to believe it, right? They had right. to yeah, believe yeah, yeah, yeah. the Lord's there. Yeah. And uh, when they were spiritually right with God, they did believe that. But I can't help but wonder if there were people who didn't believe it. I mean, prior to the building, right, he was in the Holy of Holies. When they're going through, going through the desert, they would have seen him. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. So they built their, their um, tents. The ta- yeah, the tabernacle. Well, they would have seen the pillar of God there. They couldn't right. deny that. But when the temple was built, yeah, then the, then what happens? Yeah, there there doesn't appear there doesn't appear yeah. to be a pillar of cloud that's stretching up into the sky, so that makes me wonder if in the temple, the Lord is going to dwell. Believers who are glorified will have access to Him, will be able to see Him, but the normal people, when I say normal, the natural body people, 
there will be limited access. There will still be a priesthood, and the priests will have the special privilege. Of, and they're still going to be doing their... Um, and they, when they approach God, when they approach the Lord in the temple, they still have to do so carefully, bringing sin offerings. They're going to still have to do their offerings. They're, exactly. They're sacrificing of the, the lamb and, and whatnot. And all that. And so that makes me wonder if there might be people during the millennium that say, how do you know that he's in there? How do you know? Because glorified people will reign over the earth, so that means they're going to see us. Yeah. But you know that they're going to have ways of explaining away the supernatural and the tribulation. There's going to be a great delusion. Mm. You know, so what if it's the same in the millennium? There are these people who say, yeah, I don't know about that. Now, I don't know what they're going to do to explain it away, but there, there's going to be a different worldview. For people who rebel, they're gonna they're obviously going to justify their rebellion in some way. They're gonna deny that the all powerful King of Kings Jesus is dwelling in that temple. Somehow. And I don't know how they're gonna do it, so that makes me wonder what if he is concealed except to glorified believers and the priesthood. And if it's and if nobody else is able to see him directly, then maybe that's one of the reasons why they can deceive themselves. So there's going to be manifestations of his power clearly, but it's not going to be enough to overpower them. So that way, it's so obvious you couldn't be an unbeliever. There will be unbelievers in the millennium somehow. Uh, I don't know if it'll be a common occurrence, but the fact that it happens proves that they're going to have some way of explaining away what's going on. So, anyways, um, I've wondered about that, but we will serve as priests, glorified believers will, because we'll be priests. It's going to be, sound kind of weird, but we will be priests to the priests. Right. So the priests on earth that are of the nation of Israel and only of the nation of Israel, apparently, I mean, unless I've missed something, I mean, they're going to be Jewish priests. So they're going to, they're going to be Jewish priests. Uh, these Jewish priests are going to have access to God in the temple. They're going to be representing other natural body believers but it mentions in Revelation 19, or sorry, not 19:20, it says that we will be priests of God and Christ, which means we will stand between all natural body people and Jesus. So we'll be the go-betweens. So that means we'll have free access to the Lord. We'll be able to see the Lord. We'll be communing with him. I'm sure we're going to be receiving assignments from him. If we're actively if we're actively participating with him as re- as it's reigning over like the earth backwards because you know, he dies on the cross and we have access direct access to him right huh we as you know flesh and blood and whatnot so when you're, what you're saying is in the millennium then it's going to go backwards and they're going to have to go through the priests yeah the so yeah so they will be justified the same way because in the old testament they were justified the same way they were saved the same way, but the way they approached God obviously was very different. Mm. And it was because they were in their sin 
Now, though, once you're saved in the New Testament age, you're not in your sin anymore. However, we still have what you might call sinful bodies. We have bodies that are uh, fallen, mortal, right? So they're corrupted. And so... I th- my, my belief is that when they come before God in the millennium, the reason that there's so much red tape, you might say, is because God is giving these people an opportunity to believe. Not the first generation that goes in. They've already believed. But their kids and their kids after them, they're, they're going to make their own choice. They're going to believe. And so there needs to be some reminder of how there's a separation between them and God. They're not going to be given the same access to God if they're not believers yet. And so, and we're not right now, are we? We don't have the same access to God that people do in heaven. Um, We have to exercise faith and we have to just wait on the Lord to either come back or for us to go. In the millennium, it's going to be the same way. Obviously, there's going to be more participation of of Christ on earth. I mean, right now he's reigning, but it's going to be a little more direct, right? Because his throne's on earth. But the idea is the people that haven't believed yet, the kids that are growing up, Mm -hmm. like you can't expect them to have the same privileges that people who have already been glorified, right? And they, you know, they're not going to have the same access to God. So that's when we'll serve as the priests. But again, what are we going to be doing? I think we'll probably be telling people like, listen, this is the glory of heaven. This is, you know, you think that this world that you live in is great. Imagine how awesome heaven is. And the reason that you're having to do these sacrifices is because God's trying to teach you. He's trying to teach you what sin is. He's trying to teach you what death is. Every time you go up to the temple for a field trip, youngsters, and you, you see these animals losing their lives, and that's not something you see out in nature anymore, is it, right? Like when I grew up, death happened all the time. Suffering happened all the time. Let me tell you about that. You know, but you don't know what that looks like. So that's why God is showing you what it looks like, because this is how terrible sin is. So they're going to really need a very strong way of of God impressing them with the seriousness of sin. Right now, we can look at how broken the world is and say, listen, nobody needs to tell us how serious sin is. Because it's pretty obvious how serious. Uh, And war. Think of war. Think of corruption. None of that will exist in the millennium. Okay, it won't. There won't. There won't be trafficking. You know, the, the, there won't be countries invading other countries. So, how are they going to see the devastating consequences of sin? They got to have some way of seeing it. And so, coming up to the temple, there's going to be this constant reminder: you can't go in there. So, Why? So, I'm a sinner. But they're going to have to. That, that's just it. They're going to have to know about sin. They're, they're, they're not going to be, will they be any better than us? No, they, they will sin, yeah. But the way that it's managed is going to be different. Like, I mean, the government is going right. to be different. No, absolutely. The government's going to be different. And, you know, the judges are going to be uncorruptible. And, the, and you know, the uh-huh. government's going to be uncorruptible. But there's still going to be people that are going to be sinning. Yeah. To the worst. There will be people that are sinners. Yeah, right. and, and it mentions what will happen to them. It says right. that exactly right. it says those rebels are going to be, at the very end of Isaiah, it says their bodies are going to be thrown outside, hmm. the t- uh, outside of Jerusalem, and they're going to, like there's going to be a 
burning trash heap there perpetually. Right, just like and it says the people right. of Jerusalem are going to go out and gaze upon them. Mm. And so that's going to be pretty sobering reality too. Right. I think that might be essentially a hellfire and brimstone sermon being preached with a very powerful visual aid. You see these people right here? You see that right there? That's what happens to those who rebel against God. Right. I mean, so th- there, again, you're like, man, that just seems so... So much, <laughs> so extreme. But again, we have all kinds of illustrations of sin and death around us today. They're not going to have all of that. They're going to live in a paradise world. Mm. So seeing how God treats those who sin and right. seeing how God treats you, like, hey, you still got to offer your sin offering. You got to come up to the Lord the right way. And uh, you can't go directly into the presence of God. You know, you need someone to represent you. Hey, you know what all that represents? Jesus representing you. Jesus bringing you to the Father. And so I think that all of that is going to serve uh, a symbolic purpose. Obviously, sin's already been paid for at that point. No one is offering up sacrifices to be saved. But it's teaching them. And we're taught symbolically, too. You know, we're, We haven't completely had symbols removed in the church age, we have the the Lord's Supper, right? And every right. time we take the Lord's Supper, it's not a sacrifice, right? But it's a reminder of one. And so, essentially, offering those animal sacrifices will replace the Lord's Supper. It will be a reminder of sin. It'll be a reminder of what Christ has done for us. It'll just be a pretty in-your-face one, enough to get the attention of those people mm-hmm. um, who live in that idyllic world. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, that's it's going to be a weird time because we, we're not used to thinking that way. You know, for us as Christians, when we die, we go to heaven. There's no animal sacrifice in heaven. You know, There's no sin issue in heaven. Everybody that's there knows about sin. They have glorified natures. Even if they don't glorify bodies yet, in heaven, everybody's got a perfectly sinless spirit that God's washed free of all of that impurity. And uh, at the rapture, it's going to be the same way. In heaven, we're going to be completely glorified. But on earth, it's going to be different. It's like this in-between state. Jesus is here. He's reigning with the saints, but it's not perfect yet. It's weird. It really is weird. It's like there's not going to be any war, but yet there'll be some rebels. People are going to die. Huh? And we will know who they are. We will know who they are. And and these people are going to rebel uh, and, and still live a life of 100 years. I mean, that's crazy. It's like everything's going to be different. It's going to be a whole different age. So it's that's just, scary. It, it's, it's really weird. Now, and we, for that thousand years, I mean, we're going to have a job to do. Yeah. We're going to be representing Christ. He might appoint me as a door holder, you know, whatever. But he's, he's going to have something for me to do. Yeah, it's, it's a little scary. It, it makes me very happy. Looking forward to the rapture, absolutely. We're looking forward to everything. It would, and then it starts to get a little bit real, right? Because in, in the times we're in, it's like, you know, this war coming down, Russia's probably going to head down to Israel. Sooner or later, you know, all that's going to happen. The rapture's going to happen at any time. It's going to be chaos here. Mm-hmm. And, okay, so then we get to heaven. Okay, but then we got all this other stuff. You know, for me, it's kind of, it's, it's a little bit 
Well, on the bright it side, real. you know what I mean. It does, and I know exactly what you're saying. But on the bright side, um, we have to remember, as a, as the church, what we will be doing at that time is going to be described as rest. Because it says that in, and I think it's Hebrews right. 4, he says, right now is your work phase. Yeah. When you die, you're done working. Okay, yeah. you enter in your rest. Yeah. So whatever God has you do in the millennium, it's not going to be work as in hard labor. Yeah, 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 You'll have yeah. a task, right? Because yeah. we all want a task. We all want something to, yeah. do. Want something to do. But it's not going to be work. It's going to be characterized by rest. Mm. So whatever is happening among the natural bodied people, and how they relate to God, our relationship to God will be rest. Their relationship to God will be work because yeah. it's a time of testing for them. Even if they've already accepted Christ and they're sure. saved, they're still running the race. Now, the race that they're running is obviously different than the one we're running in this yeah. world, right? Because the conditions are different. But the whole point is they're still being tested. They'll be held to a higher account. And so, yeah, because they have all of that information, yes. you know? Um, but they're going to be, they're going to be tested. And then at the very end of the millennium, apparently I assume there'll be another reward giving ceremony for the people who got saved during the millennium and who didn't participate in that rebellion. And they said, no, no, uh, uh-uh, uh, I ain't going to be a part of that. All right. Those believers will no doubt get their glorified bodies and God will reward them in whatever way he sees fit. And then there'll be the final judgment. And then when you get to the new heaven, the new earth, you're going to be in a static position now. Wherever you're at at that point, mm-hmm. you're there forever. Yeah. There's no changing. There's no shifting. The millennium is a time of testing still. Mm-hmm. Not for people who are part of the church. Right. Your test is over. You're in rest now. You're yeah, in the rest yeah. period. But it's going to be a weird time. And, and that's why I think that over over the years, Christians have sort of, they have been apprehensive about the millennium because it's so weird. It's so different. And so what do they do? Well, they, they tend to allegorize it and spiritualize it. They tend to make it into just a representation of the church age. Oh, well, the millennium's the church age because it, it makes it easy to dismiss that way. Yeah. Because if you start, if I start talking to people about this, like students, they're like, this is really complicated. Like rapture, tribulation, a millennium, and glorified yeah, sure. natural bodies, and yeah. you're telling me that Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years before he's judged, and God's going to let him free, and he's going to deceive people before he's cast into the lake of fire? Why does he do that? I don't know. There's going to be animal sacrifices? Well, I thought those have been fulfilled. It's like a lot of weird stuff's happening. And so that is, that is the cost yeah. of interpreting Scripture Literally in a face value. Yeah. But that's what he wants us to do. And when it comes to the details that don't make sense to us, we simply say, you know, God, it'll make sense when it happens. But for us as believers now, I think that that's one of those things we shouldn't worry about as much. I think that whenever the millennium happens, they're going to have a Bible still. And they're going to be reading the Bible. And they're going to be studying the Bible like we're doing right now. And they're going to be talking about these millennial passages. They're going to use it as their handbook, like the priests, when they're building their temple and they're setting up how things Absolutely. are to be done and who gets what, you know, who gets this territory and the prince, the descendant of David, and, you know, what he gives to his kids, mm-hmm. you know, who the priests can marry and who they can't marry. All that's given in the text. So they're still going to be looking at the Bible. We, on the other hand, we're going to be like, well, 
you know, our time of testing is gone. And so now we're going to help you. You know, it's kind of like we're retired, but we'll be happy to impart to you knowledge because that's our purpose right now. We're the priests. We're representing you. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's definitely weird. And, uh, I think that if you're, if your mindset is save, die, heaven, hell, and, that, and that's what you got, yeah. then, <laughs> but anyways, uh, I had I had one student who said that to me. She's like, like I thought it was just a lot more simple than this. Like Jesus comes back, you're saved, you're not, heaven, hell, it's over. And I'm like, if only it was so simple. Now in a way, it is simple. It is that simple. It is that simple. Okay. Like if you want to know where you're going, it is one simple choice to believe sure. in Jesus, right? And for those people that live in the millennium, one simple choice, believe in Jesus. Whenever they do that, even if they're 10 years old, 5 years old, when they do it, it's done, right? That doesn't mean that they get the glorified bodies right there. Do we get our glorified bodies automatically? No, we don't. We got to wait. We got to run the race. And so they'll have to run their own. Yeah. Um, it's, it is that simple and... It's good to think about, okay, finally we're in the millennium and this is what I'm going to be doing. This is what it might look like for me. It also, the, the, the opposite, the alternative, is good to think about as well, right? For somebody that's not saved, mm -hmm. it's like, okay, what's hell going to be like? Well, it's not going to be very good. <laughs> I mean, I think about, um, and I think you guys have watched those movies, um, the um, What's it called? It's uh, the mummy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's the mummy, and and they go. He gets pulled into the pit. Yeah, 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 yeah. And all the hands. Yeah, and the mummy returns. That's yeah. Kind of exactly what I envision it like. Like there's this awful place, and they just pull you in. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know if that's what it's like, but. Dang. Yeah, I I don't know what it's like, but um, what's up with that boy right there? What's supposed to be Okay, I'll pause this. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs>